Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Zohar Atkins. He's a rabbi, philosopher, blogger, and podcaster. Uh, so welcome to the show. Great to be here, Stuart. Thanks. Yeah. So I've seen you on Twitter a couple times talking about philosophy. It sounds like you have a broad broad grasp of the lot of different ideas, particularly in the Western canon. Uh, what is your favorite? Who is your favorite philosopher? Um, it's a toss-up between Socrates and Heidegger. So Socrates, because his form was dialogue, and I think that philosophy feels most alive when it's conversational. And I also really resonate with Socratic questioning, not this sort of aggressive aspect of it, but just this idea of like bringing people to a place of awe through questioning and getting them to realize the contradictions in their thought and also just the humility of not knowing where the questioning is going to lead. I love that. Um, Heidegger, because um, even though he's politically, you know, challenging vis-a-vis -vis his Nazism, oh. I always have to give a, I have to give a caveat for, for people who know and for people who don't know. I think his um, command of the philosophical tradition and then what he was trying to do with it being both a retrieval of ideas that he found dormant in it, but also something revolutionary and new um, speaks to me, um, both, both in terms of how I want to relate to the history of, the, of philosophy, but also just more generally as a model for how do you relate to tradition and that sort of paradox of both being traditional and being revolutionary at the same time. <laughs> that is quite quite a line. How how do you uh, walk that line of being traditional and revolutionary? Yeah, I think the weird place that I've come to on that, and this is something I got from Heidegger and, and others as well in the 20th century, um, like Franz Rosenzweig, for example, um, who is a New York contemporary of, of Heidegger's, is the idea that the more versed you are in tradition, the more choice you have interpretively to make it new. Whereas people who don't know tradition and lack literacy in some strange ways, although they think that their ignorance is allowing them to choose something new and modern are actually beholden to the past because the ideas that they're coming to are ideas that have already been trotted out before. I give you one sort of parable for this that my political philosophy professor uh, gave in college, John Tomasi, who was a guest on my podcast, he said that um, he, he played us a clip from The Devil Wears Prada, where um, uh, it was a Meryl Streep asked Anne Hathaway, like, what color is this dress? And she's like, it's blue. And then, and, and then Meryl Streep proceeds to give her lecture and says, it's not, it's not blue, it's cerulean blue. And like the person, the high fashion designer who decided that um, that cerulean blue is in this year, is the one who's um, responsible for the fact that it's like on the sales rack uh, at the gap in a couple of years. And so I kind of feel like most people wear these, you know, they're getting their philosophy off the sales rack at gap. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you can 
be in high fashion, so to say, by going back to the original sources, then you just have a lot more understanding of the things that other people take for granted. This may be a personal um, kind of blocking limitation I have, but whenever I try to read older books, um, it I always get stuck in the language. I have this tendency when I'm reading when the language gets in the way and it, it, ha it happens with native language or uh, foreign languages as well, where I just stop paying attention and my, I, my attention goes to other places and I'll read things for like three pages and not actually read it. And that always happens when I'm trying to read the primary sources. It might've happened because I got, I tried to take on too much when I was a younger kid, didn't understand anything and build this habit of like just moving quickly. But what I can watch videos and get secondhand sources of philosophers. Um, wh what do you suggest for me in terms of this reading the primary sources with this great challenge that I have of actually reading the books? That's an awesome question. Um, just in terms of affirming you and giving a little bit of my own experience on that, I remember like I went to Israel when I was 17 on a trip um, called the Bronfen Youth Fellowship. It was a very formative trip in my life because it was one of the first times where I experienced learning for its own sake. And just that love of learning sort of decoupled from, you know, doing well on a test or writing a paper that would get an A. It was just, you know, exploratory. And I, th I think that was relatively rare in, in my high school environment and even middle school. So that was just like a breath of fresh air. And I think for me, learning Jewish sources with other people who had that desire for learning, but where it wasn't attached to, you know, some kind of like assessment or some kind of like egotistical, like proving yourself relative to the pack. Um, that really left a, a long impression on me. So anyway, so after um, doing that trip, I had this hunger for learning and I went to the public library in my town in Montclair and I went to the philosophy section and I just started pulling out all these books. I was like, I'm going to read these. Like, I need to know everything. <laughs> and I pulled out Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. I took it out from the library. Um, I remember thinking, wow, I'm, I'm adulting now, you know, I'm so, I'm so, I'm like, this is like, look at me. I'm so awesome. I've got Kant. I had like my dad's Honda Civic, um, like beat up, like I was driving to school. Like, you know, I just got my license. I had Kant in my front seat and I was like reading him like for a couple of minutes before class and I couldn't understand a word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, my I, I had that experience. My eyes were glazing over. It's like he keeps saying subject and object. I don't know what subject is. What the heck is subject? Is subject like chemistry class? Like that's what I thought subject mean. It's like <laughs> the subject is he. The subject is this. I'm like, wait. I thought it's like okay. I have English, history, math. Like I don't know. I don't get it. And then object. I was like, wait. And then it was like object, and it was like this very technical meaning of object. And I'm like, because no one taught me subject object distinction. Um, so I didn't know that subject is the viewer and object is the thing viewed, for example. Um, and I was just trying to make sense of the meaning of subject and object on the basis of my high school vernacular. And it's like, was totally garbled. I did have that experience. I think like, this is not, so I'm going to answer your question, but like, but the first thing I would say is honestly, just like patience. Uh -huh. Like it's kind of just like sand the floor, Daniel's son, like you're not going to get it for a long time and just like let the words wash over you and experience that incomprehension. And like that too is part of it. Yeah. Um, Cause it is learning language and it's just, you got to immerse yourself and there's that disorientation. Um, and also like, it's worth understanding. It's worth experiencing firsthand how philosophy is a weird language. And, and in some ways it's hostile to the world because it's inventing a private language in a way or a language just for philosophers. Like, mm. 
how you do anything is how you do everything. So like if, if philosophy is alienating, you know, that's also useful information in a way about like what the form is doing um, almost as, as a performance of something like, yeah, maybe you'd say Kant wasn't a clear writer. He wasn't a great stylist, but like, isn't that interesting that one of the greatest philosophers of the modern period was also a terrible communicator. Like that says something. And like, he, we know he was a terrible communicator because um if if you define good communication as people know what you're saying, he spawned like all kinds of conflicts in his, you know, for hundreds of years in terms of commentary on Kant. Kant, like, what does this guy actually say? Kant, um, you could say was a, a feature of his philosophy that that nobody understands him and that now there's a cottage industry of Kant commentary. Um, but you could also say that like, if he had just been a lot more clear in his writing, then, you know, we would know what his philosophy was instead of, you know, having hundreds of years of debate. So that uh, all of that is just one giant throat clear to say like, Stuart, you're not alone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In terms of, in terms of the question itself, like what would I recommend? Um, Like, how do you get the experience of the firsthand philosophy without necessarily like having to bang your head against a wall? Um, I mean, there are like really good, just primary source guides that I think if you read you know, alongside the, the primary sources do help, but, um, I'm biased towards reading, but like there's a Routledge guide and Oxford companion and short introduction to, and like those things helped. I mean, I also remember when I went to the public library in high school, like I picked up Wittgenstein's Tractatus, which is pretty much, you know, was largely gobbledygook to me at the time but I also picked up a book called Wittgenstein in 90 minutes and I found that to be quite helpful mm-hmm. so I'm not against supplements if you will yeah there's something interesting I found which is that when I have this top-down approach where I'm going to read these classical books and understand them uh, usually I would run into this block and I would just not go through it but then in another part of my life where I started to become interested in Advaita Vedanta and non-dual lit- literature from from India, it would there would I would be reading older books. Maybe it's also the fact that they were translated later. I've always wondered that is the translation and when it was canonized canonized is that does that play a part into the language of the philosophy? Like how much liberal um, how much liberty do translators have in translating these documents into language that's comprehensible? Like if something was translated in the 1800s, does that make a big difference? And then became part of the canon. Does that make a, a big difference in terms of its comprehensibility? It does make a difference, not just in terms of comprehensibility, but in terms of what's comprehended. But there are updated translations. So like with with Kant, like there are like cutting edge academic translations. So I think the, the issue isn't um, that we don't have... Uh, good translations the issue is Kant if you know what I'm saying um okay so it is a problem of him basically of not being the best communicator I mean or just you could say it differently like take a startup founder trying to tell you about some uh some technology that's going to help with like AI and blockchain and those are just words to you like what what the heck is that right and they're like oh and they just start throwing terminology at you you're like I have no idea how to validate whether this is legit or not and maybe like nine times out of 10, it is fraud or, or it is a bad idea, but like one times out of 10, it's something revolutionary. And so you could say that like coming up with a new conceptual language is kind of similar in that um, 
they're kind of seeing through a glass darkly and maybe they're tr they're trying to push the boundaries of knowledge forward that requires uh, um that requires doing something that's going to feel strange and you're going to be lost but that's necessary if you want to be on the frontier like mm -hmm. i think adorno says that he says that sort of um philosophy is the negation of the world as it is um and so the language that philosophy has at its disposal is going to be it's it, by definition not going to be comprehensible like the the fact that it's not comprehensible is a sign that it's doing something important mm. okay that answers a lot of questions so what is was jesus a philosopher or or was buddha a philosopher or were they religious figures um i suppose it depends on definition so like I, love of wisdom love of understanding love of truth um i think philosophy emphasizes those things and religion can't be can't get off the ground if it doesn't have a view on truth as well if it doesn't have a view on wisdom as well but i do think that in jesus and buddha and other religious leaders there's a focus on creating um what sociologists call plausibility structures hmm. for truth in a way that i'm not sure philosophers in terms of how they live their lives were as focused on for example um, if Buddha wants to create a world in which people understand the truth, that means it's got to be a world in which you go around teaching people and you go around affirming people and you go around being compassionate towards people. Now, he also had a view that, like, I, I think, again, based upon my understanding, that, like, um, the, the there, there's, a, there's a true way to live based upon the truth. So if the truth is that, like, let's say the ego is an illusion or that suffering is downstream of desire, um, then maybe you've got to live in a certain way. And so there's an ethics that comes with that. Now, um, Plato also thought that ethics accompanied was, was part of ontology was part of philosophy, but like, if you go through the Western philosophical tradition on the whole philosophers are not assessed on the basis of how virtuous they lived. Mm. Whereas for a religious leader, typically the way that they're evaluated is like how they made you feel the miracles they performed, the sort of, um, what do you call it? Like, um, hagiography, this, the sort of saintly stories of their example, you know, Oh, like think of a statue of the Buddha. It's a, it's his smile that that's being codified in popular imagination. Mm. And, and the no same for G. Either. <laughs> there's no statues of heidegger and they'd be creepy and hideous but um i mean maybe a couple people have them but that's like you know that that's that's the point but even even if you take let's say a a, a philosopher who maybe was a little bit more noble like um uh levinas for example uh or, or i mean he's a bit obscure but like i'm trying to even think and that's exactly the point i don't know kant for example yeah there are, there are statues of kant but like for the most part, so so with Jesus though, similarly, it's like there's there's all this iconography around Jesus, and what does it show? It shows like a loving person, you know. He's he's portrayed in folklore as like the son of God, um, as somebody who petitions on behalf of humanity, as somebody who cries, as somebody who feels agony. Um, I think it was I, I forget who said this, but um, you know, Jesus, uh, Socrates never laughs, and Jesus, sorry, so Socrates never. Uh, weeps and Jesus never laughs. Hmm. 
So I think that's right. Yeah, Jesus cries, but he doesn't laugh. Socrates laughs, but he doesn't weep. Mm. Um, of course, Socrates himself is the exception. Socrates was a, was a saint, was a saint, mm, yes. and Socrates's apology, Plato's apology, and um, some of the other dialogues very much um, memorialize Socrates as an exemplary figure whose sort of legacy was the way that he lived and the and his example. But after Socrates, like if you think about Aristotle, for example, mm -hmm. nobody talks about how did Aristotle live? They just talk about Aristotle's thought. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, if by contrast, you take St. Augustine, who's called a saint in the Christian tradition, like his confessions, he was a philosopher, but his confessions are sort of about his attempt to live faithfully. That's just a, got a very different tone and vibe than you know, Descartes' meditations, which is like, how do I know that I'm not deceived? So basically, philosophy sometimes coincides with religion, but they don't have to coincide with each other to move philosophy forward. In the in the Middle Ages, most philosophers were religious, and most religious and and religious many religious leaders were informed by philosophy. There were sort of intra philosophical and intra-religious debates about rationality and how much weight we should assign to reason. And there were always extreme figures who sort of saw piety as intention with rationality, such that if you really wanted to be religious, you should reject philosophy. You should open your heart to revelation. You should open your heart to prayer and to experience of the super rational or the non-rational. Um, and those debates continue to this day with, let's say, certain people in New Age or astrology sort of saying, yeah, philosophy and the Western mind are limited, but I'm having real experiences and I don't need to justify them to philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you have people like Maimonides, people like Aquinas, people like St. Anselm, many, many uh, medieval thinkers, Al-Farabi, um, who thought that um, rationality was a gift from God. And a tool, one of the best tools we have for realizing God's will and understanding the truth. So um, in the medieval period, philosophy and theology were very much simpatico, even if there was some kind of competition between the two. But in terms of what I was saying before, I think the main difference between philosophy and, and religion is that religion is trying to improve humanity as a whole. Folk, like it's a theory of change and it's focused on community building. And there are certain things that religions offer, like ritual and storytelling and uh, a sense of communal belonging and responsibility. And philosophers tend to be lone wolves who talk to other philosophers. Often those philosophers are dead. Um, so you commune with the sort of ghosts of previous philosophical eras, or maybe you have a small cotter of um, students or, or philosophical peers and you either teach those students or you debate your peers but like there's very little sort of translation outside of that philosophical realm I think then in the modern period like philosophers were men of letters and they were kind of celebrities and then that was kind of the prehistory of the public intellectual where like let's say Rousseau um, and Kant and, uh, and Locke and Hobbes like these people were contributing ideas that actually drove history in many ways. Like there'd be no French revolution without the ideas of the enlightenment. Um, there'd be no American revolution without the ideas of Locke. So um, 
in that sense, like philosophers very much were actors in history, but um, again, in the modern period, they tended to be in, like either anti-religious or um, suspicious of popular religion in part because popular religion what is about common sense and philosophy, it tends to be contrarian. Hmm. I know almost nothing about Wittgenstein, but I hear him cited a lot in terms of in spiritual circles. Was Wittgenstein religious at all? Wittgenstein was religious. Um, he sought to live a good life. He sought to live a pious life. Um, Again, like what religion means to him is somewhat idiosyncratic. Some of his um, students are, are or were religious. Um, I think, you know, there's nothing inherently religious or not religious in Wittgenstein's thought, but he was obsessed with language, um, with how language makes meaning and how many of our errors in philosophy and communication are downstream of our expectations of what language can and can't do. Um, I think because Wittgenstein... Um, he, he's often viewed as postmodern, but he's often viewed as somebody who sort of shows that philosophy is, uh, language is a game that we play. It's not really, it you know, we, there's nothing that we say that's fundamentally true. As long as it's a language, it's more just about words having certain values that can be moved around. Um, there is something that, that, that can lead to a certain religiosity because um, it, it diminishes the value of logic or rationality by turning philosophy into a game. And then the other way in which I think it can lead towards religiosity is that um, he defends, he ultimately defends ordinary language. He says that philosophy, the job of philosophy is in some sense to cure philosophers of philosophy. So it's the self-reflexive thing where you have to <laughs> come to the conclusion that philosophy leads nowhere and then renounce philosophy and go back to being normal. And that is a kind of uh, religious move, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, like, that, that shows up in a lot of places. And uh, there's one book in particular where you, where, uh, uh, but I'm forgetting the name of it, where, you know, there's an enlightened figure working at the gas station, basically. Um, and that it, a lot of people talk about the simplicity of enlightenment, that, that if you're enlightened, you don't have to have roles or whatever you can just work at a, a gas station and you can find these normal people working everywhere um exactly um and one of Wittgenstein's students was Stanley Cavell who kind of took that idea as well he was very into um ordinary language and sort of the idea that a person can say something philosophically profound even without putting it in philosophical terminology so it's the job of the philosopher to sort of go around eavesdropping on popular culture and everyday speech and finding the philosophy in it. But you don't have to actually change your vocabulary to become quote unquote philosophical. Interesting. There's a lot of questions I have that we can take it from here. Uh, I'm very interested on your take on technology, on rationalism, on scientism. Um, and then there's that kind of thing you just mentioned of, of just having this, this paradox of like some people say that you need to be ordinary in order to do philosophy. And then some people say you got to go and be a contrarian to do philosophy. And then this brings in kind of Rene Girard. I'd be curious to hear what you think about him. But uh, where do you want to take it from all those things I just said? Um, so science, rationality and technology and contrarianism. All right, we'll, we'll see what I can hit. So uh, 
Right. Um, I don't think that philosophers aspire to be contrarian. I think philosophers aspire to the truth. But a lot of philosophers come to the meta conclusion or the sociological uh, conclusion that most people are not interested in truth. They're interested in fitness. They're interested in what's adaptive. They're interested in self-gain. They're interested in things that um, if you were interested in truth, you might be less interested in. And so that does put the philosopher in a position, um, in a minority position, rather, relative to society. Now, some of that view on philosophy as sort of an outsider position is formulated by Leo Strauss, who thinks that um, firstly, and for the, the experience of philosophy is one uh, that takes place in opposition to the state. The state has certain narratives about how we should behave, and philosophers question those assumptions. They say, is that really the case, or on what basis do you make these claims? And um, they undermine the authority, let's say, of the tyrants of the ancient age. And so that puts and so that puts the philosopher in a bind where the philosopher can either speak his mind entirely and be killed, and that's what happened to Socrates, or the philosopher can give a coded message and sort of speak out of two, uh, like two sides of his mouth. He can speak to philosophers who know that what he's saying is subversive, and he can also speak to society and say, "Don't worry, you know, I'm not." Um, I'm not challenging you on the on those things. On those things, I just concede. But nevertheless, like the close listener sees that the philosopher is, um, he's not conceding philosophically. He's only conceding practically. And so that does leave a wedge for doubt. Um, in the modern age, like philosophy might have been seen as anti-authoritarian um, as part of this enlightenment project, but then it also becomes skepticism so that it can actually, there's like a horseshoe effect where you might also then be skeptical, for example, of the fact that is it self-evident that all men are created equal? Maybe it isn't self-evident. Um, so hmm. philosophy cuts in all directions, I would say. It's it's really, um, it, it, you have to be willing to be unpopular to be a philosopher. That being said, not all philosophers took unpopular views because um, some of them come to the philosophically justified view that tradition is good or common sense is good or consensus is relatively trustworthy. Um, and so, yeah, I think the origins of philosophy tend to put it in a contrarian position, but that doesn't mean on a case-by-case -case basis that all philosophers are contrarian. Um, I think especially in an American context, like the dominant philosophy of the 20th century was pragmatism. And pragmatism actually says that like the truth doesn't really matter. What matters is what works or, or said differently, um, sort of we're not interested. We, we shouldn't be interested in theoretical questions. We should be interested in um, questions only on the basis of whether they help us achieve the things that we want to achieve. Um, <laughs> Bless you. So that's contrarianism. Um, Technology and uh, yeah. In the, in the, in the pre-Socratic period. So meaning in the period before Socrates, um, philosophers were engaged with questions that um, they saw as all interconnected, but today have gotten segmented out into different fields. For mm -hmm. example, um, religion, science, um, technology, those were all in some sense intertwined for the ancient philosophers. I think as we've gotten more modern, 
uh, we've created more boundaries or barriers between, let's say, science and religion, uh, or science and philosophy, or philosophy and religion. Um, technology is philosophically um, well. Philosophy is a technology because any way of thinking about the world is a technology. If philosophy leads to new ways of behaving or new ways of thinking or new ways of communicating, then it's it's a technology. Um, I think great technologists implicitly must have a philosophy on how the world ought to be experienced as well as how it is experienced. I think if, for example, if you're building a technology, you care about user experience, user experience wouldn't be possible without what's called phenomenology which is the study of human experience, the study of human perception. Um, that being said, like, I don't think we're necessarily training engineers explicitly in phenomenology, but that doesn't mean implicitly they don't have one. That's interesting. Um, and then Heidegger, do we, go, for go ahead. How do we learn from technology? And my main example for this would be something like, Facebook, what we've learned from privacy about Facebook and we, what we've learned about the actual application of privacy and that maybe a lot of people don't actually care about privacy, even though it's one of our core tenants in the United States. Um, and then another kind of blaring example is AI and uh, what are we going to learn from AI and and like how what is that feedback cycle between technology and philosophy? What we learn from these things I don't know if those things necessarily get you to the level of philosophy because, well, philosophy, let's say, concerns itself with human nature. Um, the problem with taking anything as a case study for philosophy is the problem of induction, which is just, is this, is this sample a good sample? Is it enough to extrapolate from? Um, if you have Aristotelian uh, temperament, then induction is fine. So you could you can go around just collecting case studies and building out taxonomies on the basis of it. If you take a more deductive view, then you already have your theory about what human nature is. And then you go and you look at Facebook and you look at AI and you just see your theory born out or not born out. And the problem with deduction is that there's no real way to falsify it because you can always just say, oh, this is an edge case. This is an exception. Um, we can learn a lot sociologically and anthropology, anthropologically from um, how we interact with technology. But in terms of what do we learn philosophically from it, that's a tough one. Heidegger was interested in that question. Heidegger wrote an essay in the 50s called The Question Concerning Technology. He thought that modern technology defined modernity, that the origins of modern technology go back to the ancient world, um, starting with Plato, and that um, if you want to understand what it is to be modern, then you have to look at the essence of technology through a philosophical frame. But because he had that view, which I think is like a hedgehog view as opposed to a fox view. In other words, it's a view, it's a grand narrative view of technology as a whole. I don't think Heidegger was necessarily so concerned with specific differences between technologies. In other words, the atom bomb uh, was the example that he used, but like um, he wouldn't really make a distinction between the atom bomb and the self-driving car and uh gene editing and you know he, it's for him it's all just it's all modern technology and like i i think there's something powerful about painting with a broad stroke but there's a, a lot of the nuance gets missed as well um what he would say that defines the essence of modern technology is the human desire to control nature mm -hmm. um and to formulate everything in accordance with our will and our value and he thought that that was bad he thought that that leads to subjectivism 
um, which is the kind of worship of human uh, subjectivity um, at the expense of the, the idea that there might be something out there in the world that actually provides a guardrail against humans just deciding what's real. Hmm. Um, he thought that he thought that our experience of technology was absorbing in a way that would sort of get us to fall into the trap of like worshiping gadgets and sort of getting lost in the process and actually becoming commodified ourselves. So for example, like he says things that the environmentalist movement really likes, but he, I don't think it's fair to call him an environmentalist in the narrow sense, but like, for example, you, um, if you're a modern technologist uh, for Heidegger, you see a forest and so saying how beautiful are these trees um, they breathe, uh, they breathe out the oxygen that I need and we're all interconnected. Instead, you're like, oh, great. Um, how much lumber can I get from this acreage? Oh, great. Because I need this much paper, which I can sell at this price um, to this company. And then that paper becomes the newspaper, which then gets, has opinions written on it, which get disseminated. And like, there's a feedback loop there. So he was kind of rhetorically quite negative about technology but he thought it was philosophically important. Mm. He seems like he's somewhat right. Like it does seem that we have commoditized ourselves at least since the industrial revolution. And that process seems to continue to, to exponentially grow. But then there are probably also a lot of cases where technology like rapidly advances our ability to be effective Um and that feeling of effectiveness leads to this state of flow. And like, if I were to examine my own personal life, that feels really good. But then I guess the feeling good part may not be necessarily that indicative of actual like progress or uh, love of wisdom or even or or things like that. What, what's your take? Um, what is my take on whether philosophy is good for human flourishing or... Um... No, specifically this relation to, to technology, like it's opening up such vast, particularly with machine learning, it's opening up such vast ability to be effective or productive um, or maybe mm. even efficient. Uh, but in some ways, those that new time and energy that are opened up just continuously get filled with more work. Um, and like, yeah. what is the goal? What is the purpose of that? I think I think technology is a driver of economic productivity and for the middle class and upwards um, that the gains from that can unlock um, more self-actualization, but they don't necessarily lead to it. Um, that being said, I do think technology is pretty noisy. And if a person has the ability to just sit by a fireplace and read from a book <laughs> and not look at a screen, like that seems much preferable to being able to like, you know, uh, tell Siri what you want and have something like delivered at your door in an hour. Oh, interesting. So it's almost as if the current technology wave is bringing us closer and closer into the, this sort of like details but then as we get more and more addicted to this thing that can give us all these dopamine hits and this feeling of productivity, we get pulled further and far further away from these sort of ability to see things from a bird's eye view. Is that accurate? In my experience, um, that's pretty accurate. I think like 
the problem is just that without technology, very few people can be aristocrats and um, and have the kind of uh, aristocracy, aristocracy of the spirit that I think would make for a good life. Um, and so technology allows more people to have a chance at leisure and, and wealth and prosperity. Um, in my view, though, the downside is that essentially it normalizes middle-class values. Um, and so people who end up getting wealth and leisure don't even know how to use it to pursue the finer things in life because they're just addicted to their technology. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, parti- I'm particularly bearish on consumer technology as it relates to the human condition. But I also say that as someone who loves like clicking on Amazon with one click checkout and ordering whatever I want. Yeah. So I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person. And all of us are really in that. This is somebody mentioned Jacques Ellul, Ellul, um, and uh, he talks about it, talks about what you just said about it's this kind of monoculture technology seems to be coexistent with this monoculture that just takes over everything. And you can't, and this is actually Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber got stuck on, on Ted, on um, Jacques Ellul's uh, philosophy or, or, or beliefs uh and then did what he did and it's like this just monoculture that takes over everything and that you can't really separate it out and be like okay i'm just going to take this good part and i'm going to leave all the rest that the all the rest just subtly gets into your head through this ability to be more productive and bend nature to its will to our will and stuff but then we get bent to this strange mechanical nature as well what do you think about that yeah i think um i think the unabomber obvious like it goes without saying but his his response was immoral and and not a solution and did nothing um but the sentiment the kernel of truth in his manifesto i kind of agree with though i don't think it's particularly original to him you can find it in marx you can find it in heidegger you can find it in most critics of modernity which is just the idea of like the world becoming more and more like a like a grid and human beings just sort of being attached to the grid. I think you also, there's that um, Vonnegut short story, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it offhand, but about the, the sort of, it's like that Nietzschean story where everybody's got these chains on and then the one, and then the guy um, lip, like un- unlatches himself from the chains. So I think, right, there is a way in which modernity is kind of, has has us all unchanged in a way. Um, so yeah, I, I think I share a lot of sympathy for these critiques, but maybe I'm slightly more optimistic um, than let's say the Unabomber or Heidegger or Adorno um, or Marx in that I do think there are pockets of freedom and creativity and originality and meaning um, that we can find um, in spite of um, or even in collusion with our unfreedom. And I see that in religious practice and contemplative practice in um, loving relationships. I see that in the practice of gratitude. I, I think it's very hard. Um, and I, I understand what Heidegger was saying that like, we don't want a piecemeal solution where even like, right. The, the, what we've done now is like, we've taken the yoga retreat and we've commoditized that too. We've taken Shabbat like Sabbath. And it's like, Oh great. Like, look, I'm, I'm Silicon, I'm a Silicon Valley, like, heavy hitter and look at me I unplugged you know what I mean in this sort of performative way where even the the spiritual practice is like a thing you do on the side or a way of um is 
almost like enabling the addiction as opposed to an actual like practice of um, the, stepping yeah. off the grid. That's so really I, interesting. Yeah, go for it. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with Heidegger that like for the most part, that's how we are. But in my own experience, I still feel like I've had moments in which I felt free and uncaptive. And um, I think like Heidegger contrasted technology with poetry. He thought that poetry, both the experience of reading poetry, but also poetry as a broader, as a broader word referring to sort of any kind of revelatory experience um, was where it was at. And I, I feel like I've, you know, I've had moments of the poetic in my life and I try to organize my life around the poetic. I don't, I don't think I'm forfeiting the fight as much as sort of the Unabomber who feels that he's got nothing left to do but bomb something. Hmm. It's interesting because, well, there's a couple different ways we could go from here. There's the, the, my own personal experience of finding meditation on Silicon Valley blogs about how productive it's going to make me. And then falling into dark nights of the soul and all this just stuff that that productivity porn didn't really prepare me for um and that i couldn't really prepare myself for and then there's that kind of the tradition angle where if i had kind of put myself under more of a tradition instead of just googling search terms about spirituality and getting strange strange new age beliefs uh structures in my head um then yeah so now i've forgotten the other point but how can you know in this age of where well i guess it goes back to scientism and stuff where scientism do you think that scientism had has destroyed a lot of the traditions and that we'll have to recreate them like because mm-hmm. a lot of the traditions were based on this understanding of of god and you know that that cliche that nietzsche said that god is dead um and maybe I'm missing some context there because it is I haven't read the the primary sources on that, but it seems like scientism has taken a lot of the energy out of the traditions, um, and particularly with postmodernism, and that we're kind of moving around in the dark right now in terms of our traditional past. And I find a lot of people in America, in Europe, probably as well are sort of going back and being like, Oh, I'll just become a shaman. Um, because shamanism was, was the thing that happened before this whole crazy thing with the patriarchy and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that I'll just go become a shaman, you know, kind of glossing over the fact that shamans were, you know, like part of a time period where there was a lot of gnarly child sacrifice and all this crazy stuff. And so the, the solution was to, is to go back before the time that, all this stuff happened but at the same time we can't really go back and might have to start somewhere new what do you th- what do you think about that exactly if we smash the patriarchy we'll, we're going to return to uh, child sacrifice that's hilarious yes. um uh heidegger says that science doesn't think um i i, I believe when you say scientism you mean uh the distinction between using science and worshiping science or yeah the distinction between benefiting from science technologically and thinking that science answers all of our questions. Um, The the originators of science, of the scientific method were much humbler about science. They were not 
they were not into scientism. They were into spirituality and mysticism and all kinds of things. Um, Newton, for example, um, kept troves of, uh, of biblical sort of uh, commentaries in which he was trying to decode the Bible numerologically. Like that's kind of strange um, and somewhat of an embarrassment for people who want to portray a picture of Newton as just a scientist. Um, I don't, I don't really think scientism is that big of a problem uh, today relative to other problems. I think it's relatively niche. I think um, here's what Heidegger, what Heidegger got right about the scientism thing is just the idea that people aren't concerned with questions of meaning as much anymore because they're focused on what we can achieve and we can achieve achieve quite a lot and so that allows us to be distracted from meeting for quite a long time for example like if you take effective altruism um there's an element of scientism in in their worldview which is like look at like we can look at how many malaria nets we can um give people and then that allows you to sort of not ask but well, what would be the purpose of the life that we save from a malaria net i'm being i'm being a little bit glib on that but like i think utilitarianism is so focused on let's say maximizing pleasure and avoiding pain it does ignore this sort of dark night of the soul aspect of the human condition that isn't going away that's like yeah but what is the purpose of it all why is it that in the western world where we have so much abundance um on a historical basis we have um tremendous anxiety depression and suicide relative to what you would expect so um, the reason why I don't think scientism is that big of a problem is because I think most people are still religious, like even in the Western world. Um, maybe they're traditionally religious, but maybe they're not, but they're still ascribing to all kinds of superstitions and all kinds of religious patterns. Um, I think it's pretty, like, it's more, I think, an academic thing that people tend to, and, and a skeptical thing that uh, people in certain cities like New York or San Francisco are into scientism, but I don't, I don't think it's really the main driver of culture. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause it's, it's not, it's overly reflected in my head because of who I spent most of my time with when I was young. Uh, and, and as I got older, but in terms of, you know, most people in the United States, there's like probably like 50, 60% of the country is evangelical and has a strong religious space. And there's no way that they're going in, they're moving into scientism. But I think, I think on the other hand, I think scientism is bad for religion because it turns, it makes religion feel that it needs to compete with science by claiming to be scientific in its own way. And I think that leads to like pseudoscience, if you will. In other words, um, I don't really think that what makes a religious tradition compelling is whether the things it says happened, happened. Um, I think there might be power in ascribing to the historicity of let's say miracles but like i feel like the defensiveness that you get in the evangelical community when it's sort of embattled by science is just like a no-win situation for both sides yeah and that definitely happened i forget the it's the there's that court case where they were defending creationism in the school which if you go into the history of it, it turns out to be mostly fraud uh right uh, was the uh, scopes scopes monkey trial yeah, yeah exactly yep yep um well cool so we got about five minutes left um 
I would uh, maybe that's not enough time to actually answer this question. But what is your take on new age kind of occult stuff and uh, like where that that's going? And do philosophers have much to say about that? Heidegger has a line that um, irrationalism sees with a squint um, things to which rationalism is blind. And that's what I would say about new age and neocult is that it sees with a squint things to which rationalism are blind. The problem with new age and the occult is that they think that what they see with a squint, they're just, they're seeing without a squint. And that emboldens rationalism to dig its heels in and say, that stuff is all cockamamie. Um, Because in the, the way that it's presented, it is cockamamie. So I think we need to be open to the possibility that there's um, a lot of strangeness in the universe and that the human mind is a limited container relative to what else is out there. Um, But at the same time, we shouldn't claim to know more than we know um, and bite off more than we can chew. So I kind of agree with the rational perspective that we should be epistemologically humble. But I also think that um, the charge to epistemic humility should cut in both directions and make us humble also about um, about what else is possible for human experience, even if it's it's not possible through a rational framework. Yeah, that's interesting because it brings in the, the skepticism and then how skepticism can also get very, very influenced by our peers and what they're skeptical of. Um, and so if you're a new ager, then you become skeptical of the rationalists and if you're a rationalist, you become skeptical of the new agers. And then there's no sort of skepticism of the 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 peers and how how they can kind of prevent us from accepting things that may be true, but that we can't really see because of our cultural blinders. If a new age person like claims to be perceiving an aura, I believe that that's their experience. But I also believe that that claim takes place within an interpretive and cultural framework and that um, what's salient and what they're saying is about what it means for them and their community, as opposed to some objective thing that they're picking up on. And then we should just somehow dub them a uh, an authority because they're claiming authority for themselves. Yeah, interesting. Well, cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find out more about what you're working on and what you're doing? Um, thanks, Stuart. My uh, podcast is called Meditations with Zohar. And it's on Apple and Spotify. And um, I also write a couple blogs. Uh, it's hasadeh.substack.com is my Bible commentary. And what is called thinking.substack.com is where I write a philosophical sort of diary. And I'm pretty active on Twitter. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.